This is a WTOP original podcast. Welcome to another episode of The Vine Guy, a WTOP news podcast. I'm your host, Scott Greenberg. And in this episode, I am so excited to be interviewing wine industry expert, Sandra Gibbard. Now, Sandra is not just a wine industry expert. She's had two decades of experience in all aspects of media and entertainment business, including Sandra was a former Wilhelmina model and actress. She's done ABC daytime soaps, network TV series, films. She's a corporate spokesperson, and she's a preeminent guide in the wine and spirits community. Sandra, it is such a pleasure to be hosting you on the Vine Guy podcast. Welcome. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. Uh, I have to say, you've most recently been the managing lifestyle editor of the new magazine. Did I say that correctly? Uh, then you, like with the then umlauts. You. You know? <laughs> ah, then you. So it was the umlauts that threw me. So what is the new magazine? It's a um, beautiful magazine that focuses on the art world, predominantly from uh, New York down to Miami, very big into uh, the scenes down Art Basel, into the Manhattan art scene, and, you know, in, in, also in, out to Connecticut. I mean, we were very rich in uh, that culture all in the Northeast. Very cool. And you also are an accomplished author. You've been uh, in online publications, including the New York Post, the Connecticut Post, and British Glamour. Huh? <laughs> yes. British glamour, I say. The Brits are very into wine, you know. <laughs> of course. I mean, that's why we called uh, Bordeaux claret for all those years. Exactly. So tell me about how does a former model, actress, get into the world of wine? I mean, what are you doing here? That's funny. I, you know, I, I've always joked, you know, most women would go into a shoe store and get really, really excited to buy shoes. I would always go into a wine store and get really excited to buy wine. It's always been something that I've been very uh, interested in from a young age. And uh, through my acting career and modeling, I ended up booking a TV series that made me move to California, I thought, wow, now I can really get into this. So I spent weekends, all, every, all my free time, I would go up into the wine countries and build relationships with people and just make myself a nuisance, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I ask a lot of my guests this question. Can you, can you think back to that one wine where you had that epiphany, that aha moment where you said, okay, there's something more to this? I, you know what? I think I was pretty young. I went through phases. Like I, I think everybody goes through phases where you just drink one wine for a very long time until, or, or one varietal for a very long time. And I went through a, a varietal phase really of Chardonnays. I think that was a, it, that's a very beginning of, of drink, you know, yeah, when you're pretty common. Sure. Yeah. And, uh, and I started drinking nicer and nicer Chardonnays. And I started noticing the huge differences like, wow, this one, I mean, this one's really huge. This one's got a lot of flavor. This one's got a lot of oak. I'm like, why is that? It made me curious. And so I started just doing my own. And this is pre-internet, all that. It, you, know, you really had to buy books. You really had to educate yourself. I started taking little courses here and there. It was truly, truly like a passion. Then when I moved into an area that I could fulfill those, those questions and passions with, directly with winemakers, it just became something that I knew I wanted to do in my life. Wow. Now, do you actually remember a particular Chardonnay where you said, okay, that's the stuff? 
I, I wonder, I, I can't really remember. Actually, it was, I think a lot of them were the Australian ones originally because they were, yeah, because they were so different and big. And, and then I went through the, the whole Australian phase and then I came into the California ones. And then I, I remember I just, I went out of Chardonnay and switched to sparklings. I drank champagne for two years straight. That's all I ever drank. I drank every kind of champagne and every kind of sparkling I could. Well, so, I hope you're still um, drinking it. I oh yes now I now I'm I'm all over the place I you know I, I go with seasons like anybody else you know in the winter you're going to drink different things than you do in the ninety degrees of summer it's 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 totally seasonal you know, it's so interesting you say that because people always say well what's your favorite wine and they said it's based on season and reason season and reason I usually say whatever's in my glass. <laughs> Yeah, whatever I've got with friends. It's funny, I remember, uh, you know, back in very early on when I was first getting into wine, for some reason I became obsessed with Australian Shiraz. Mm. And then then I made this leap into, (laughs) don't judge, but domestic Sangiovese, which at the time was relatively hard to find. But I don't know, it just was something that I was really super into for a six or 12 month period. And then, you know, it expands from there. It is, but it's interesting. And I think people, well, everybody gets this. So now I I went through that, but I, I, and you and I being wine geekies, you know, I was exploring. I really was like purposely going through varietals and purposely going through certain regions to learn about them. But now I find, because I do a lot of events and I've been writing a lot. And now I find that uh, people just get into ruts. They get into wine ruts and they get stuck. And they don't know how to get out of them. And so that's been my thing. When I do these presentations, I use the change of the seasons or the holidays or you know, uh, big events. I use those as opportunities to introduce people to new varietals. So like, oh, if you, if you like Sauvignon Blanc, oh, you know, maybe you'd like an Albarino. Oh, let's talk about what an Albarino is and, and, and kind of push and cajole people out of their rut. Your enthusiasm is contagious, I can tell you already. <laughs> so how did you get into being a wine educator? Because I would love to sit in on one of your classes just talking. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, I, I, knew that, I knew the fun the fun and fastest way to go into this was through the corporate world. So uh, large corporations are always looking for great opportunities to have um, team building or client appreciation and uh, so I created these seminars and I've been working with large institutional banks and large corporations and I would enter- entertain their high net worth clientele or do their large merger dinners and match wines with certain courses and stuff. And again, use each one as an opportunity to educate people into other areas of other varietals and other, other regions. So while you are a very pretty face, you are much more than a very pretty face. I mean, you have an extensive knowledge in both wines and the wine industry. I'm curious, how do you think COVID has really affected the wine industry lately, particularly the challenges of, say, I don't know, smaller boutique vineyards? I'm just kind of curious on your take on this. Yeah. You know, it, everybody's been watching on the news and, and kind of making fun how, you know, the wine industry and spirits and wine, the sales have just skyrocketed through the whole COVID thing, but actually, yeah, right. Everybody, everybody, toilet paper and wine, you had to stock up, (laughs) but, uh, but, but actually there were a lot of smaller vineyards, boutique vineyards that 
uh, their main source of how they met their clientele or how they got their product out to the, their, their audience was their tasting rooms and restaurants. And when tasting rooms and restaurants shut down, these people all of a sudden were left with a lot of juice and no way to get it out to people. Um, they, they didn't have big distributors. So all the wines that we were able to get all through this whole pandemic were all wines that had big, large distribution companies and shipping them around the country. So a lot of these smaller vineyards that are so crafty and they're so beautiful and specific and their wines are very, very special, now they're sitting on them. And they're really relying on their small wine clubs and they're reaching out. I mean, I've, I've spoken to several of them. They're really sitting on a lot of stuff. They just don't know how to get it out to people because it's not so much brand recognition. And speaking of brand recognition, I've noticed that, you know, a lot of times when I go into tasting rooms across the country, whether it's, you know, on the East Coast or the West Coast, a lot of times I will find that unless you're really a pretty highly educated consumer, you're standing in a tasting room like a deer in the headlights. Mm-hmm. And unless it's really a name brand that you might be familiar with either through publications or you've had at restaurants, there's very little wine education that I've seen that goes on for, I don't want to say the everyday consumer, but certainly people that are trying to learn more about wine. What's your experience been? Yeah, I, I agree. And, I, and that was part of why I knew I could find this niche and be the go-between between the wine industry and, and the, the end user because there's nothing really coming out of the wine industry to educate and attract audience. There's really not. And, and they're very worried that the millennials aren't going to catch on to wine. I mean, there's this whole big, everybody's worried, but they're, they're really not doing an awful lot. And there's a lot of misconception, I think, of the wine industry and how snobby it can be and how elitist. And if I don't know the right language, I'm not going to ask the right questions. And it, it's, it's a shame. I think it's a real shame that the the wine industry has been able to reach out to people directly. So they they do rely a lot on people like us. They really do. What was what change would you like to see occur? How would you like to see that shift? I know it'd be really interesting if we could have maybe more media space into uh, involved into the wine industry out there. Uh, I, I'll say I, I shot a pilot uh, for a wine show about uh, ten years ago, and. Um, spoke to the people uh, at the Scripps Network, you know, the, the big networks that own TV Food Network and all that. And, and they felt even nine, 10 years ago that they were more of a beer drinking audience. They really didn't think wine was, was really the predominant beverage that their audience was interested in. So until you get the media really involved and, and excited to work with these, these industries, I think there's a big disconnect, a huge disconnect. That is interesting. Yeah, and you mentioned millennials. I, I have three boys. They're 23, 25, and 27. And mm-hmm. while they really are into wine, they actually will sit down and enjoy a wine. They'll diagnose a wine, for lack of a better word. When they have their friends come over, their friends will bring a beer or a brew beverage, such as maybe White Claw. And of course, mm. what in the world are you guys doing? Why are you not drinking more wine? And they've been very clear. They're like, we just don't know anything about yeah. And, and yeah. I, that's very interesting. Yeah, it's true. And you look, I mean, look at the advertising out there. There's beer advertising. There's the, those white claws. I mean, you see the advertising for all yeah. this stuff. 
but uh, and then the only wines that are advertised are the big, huge corporate owned, you know, massive vineyards. So um, there's and 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 you and I know a lot of people that are in the wine industry. I mean, they don't necessarily have huge advertising budgets. They're really relying on cachet, word of mouth, their product, having their product in like some of those boutique vineyards that I told to, we're taught, speaking about, uh, having them uh, represented at some of the cool restaurants uh, located out in the wine country. And then now here they are, those restaurants closed down, the tasting rooms closed down, and only a few people know about their really exclusive wines and, and they're, they're sitting on them. It's really sad. And hopefully through podcasts like this. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> you get people excited, and, and you know you're right. There's, there, I think there's a real big opportunity here. There's a really big opportunity. I, I'm in production now of another uh, attempt at a wine show, and uh, we were actually I was supposed to be at the Cannes Film Festival uh, this year. I was sponsoring a film on uh, the natural wine movement in, in uh, France called Wine Calling. It's a, it's a fantastic film. It, you know, of course, everything happens. So now I'm moving the debut of this uh, to this fall in New York. But something like that, having a wine movie uh, about these really renegade people that are, I mean, the, the natural wine movement is a huge movement in the wine industry. So this is like the first movie that's been put out there on it. And it's, it's going to be really exciting to show it to people and get people educated and excited. All right, Sandra, you open Pandora's box. Oh boy. What gets you excited about natural wine? Because I have, I am a person of two faces on natural wine. I have had <laughs> some absolutely stunning natural wines and I've had some absolutely horrific natural wines. Really? People, it, it's a thing now. And I've been at tastings where I thought the, the wine in my glass was absolutely flawed. And, and yet people were absolutely ooing and eyeing over it. Because it was a natural wine. Not because yeah. it was a wine, but because it was a natural wine. And that's not to say there aren't good natural wines. There are. So what's got you excited about natural wines? I think, you know, it's interesting that you said that. I think people are judging natural wines on a different scale than they are with the classic scale. Like, you, you know, you look at a, a Bordeaux. There are classic things, classic elements and points that you look at when you're tasting a Bordeaux. Yeah, of course. They're uniform. Right? I mean, that's a yeah. uniform standard that we judge Bordeaux by. Yeah. And so now that these are natural wines, there really is no standard to judge by. So what are we comparing them to? So you really have to, I think a lot of people are just very excited. I, I have to say, I have not had a natural wine that I've gone, but maybe I just haven't had enough of them. I don't know. I've, I, the ones that I've had, I find them very lively. I find them complicated to actually decipher really what, really what am I looking for here? They're much more, you're right. They're much more of a wild, there's no um, structural decision process of how you're, how you're going to decipher these wines. It, it's not. Interesting. Yes. I think so there is no standard by which we know they're either, you know, in my opinion, and it's just my opinion, they're either good or they're not good. And again, yeah. I'd, I've had some of each. Oh, what I, was what was your not good one? What was one? I would what was rather it not say. One? I will just tell you it was <laughs> not the name, not the name would, of it, but no, like it was, what was, was the qualities? It of was it? from Georgia, and it was done in Amphora. Huh? And it was nasty. <laughs> 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 that's so, for lack of a better well, term. That's <laughs> you know, yeah, it's a very that is a very sophisticated wine term, by the way. Now, <laughs> um, well, okay, so natural wines. Let's talk about it for just a second. I wasn't planning on going this direction, but it's yeah, cool because. A lot of people who listen to the podcast may not know what a natural wine is, mm. but you want to take a minute or two? Uh, well, the best way I could describe them, and through the film that I 
involved in getting it, it, it here to the United States. The natural wine process really is taking it down to the most basic level with the least amount of manipulation, the least amount of you know, additives and preservatives. I mean, this is, this is an absolute organic, natural process that some of the grapes and, and the varietals that they're growing there, they really are winging it in some of these areas where the, the where the, particularly where the film is, is some of these grapes, they're, they're like, well, this year we'll try this one. Uh, next year, uh, it didn't go so well. They're still in these phases of, of they're trying to figure out what grapes are responding best to, best to the natural wine process. Right. So they're using a lot of, I know they're using a lot of indigenous grapes. Mm-hmm. My understanding is they're, coming from organic vineyards because they really want to be, or even biodynamic. Very biodynamic. Yeah. They're using horse, they're using horses and and trailers. They're not using any machinery. They'll use one wine press for the whole community and they, they move it from room to room so everybody can, can take turns with it. It's, it's very, uh, very, very, I, I, you know, there's organic, there's biodynamic, and then there's natural. And, right. and I mean, they literally go out and sing to their grapes at night. I mean, these yeah, people I know. are very I've passionate. Seen speakers, <laughs> I've seen speakers in vineyards and the cow <laughs> horns full of uh, cow manure. With, right? Yeah. Vineyard rose. Yeah, to spray on the vines. I mean, right? it, the, teas. the I amount they of, call them teas. So. It's, it's, I, you know, I love the passion. I love the, the stories with wines and, and something that like I had always talked about is like this wine identity that consumers are starting to have. The people that do get into it, that get a little geeky like us and they start thinking about wines that they want to try or what, what they're going to be going into. And some people are like, oh, I'm only going to drink organic wines or, oh, I'm only going to drink wines by female winemakers or I'm going to drink wines just from France. I mean, like people get really specific into their wine and how it represents them. You come to my house, I'm going to show you, you're going to drink the wines that I carry in my house. There's a lot of there's a lot of people that do take that extra step, even though, you know, to find the knowledge online, taking a course, exploring, building a relationship with their local uh, wine shop. And next thing you know, then the people are feeling like that's my wine, you know, because it, it's the same to how I believe I'm, I'm more an organic person. I have an organic garden. I, uh, you know, I, I love Italy. I'm Italian. My grandmother's from Italy. I drink wines from, you know, Sicily from where she's from. I mean, people really like identity and stories with their wine. That's fascinating. I have never heard the term of art, wine identity. A wine identity. <laughs> so it's something that you identify with a particular grape or region or. It's a, yeah. As a consumer, I mean, it's funny, you know, as Americans, I mean, we're all from somewhere, right? Our family, our right. history, and, yeah. and it's really fun to, to explore those regions. And, and, you know, my family's from, the, from France, and my, like my friend's family is from Sicily, and he specifically buys all Sicilian wines. When you go to his house, he's got Sicilian white, Sicilian red, he's got that narrow Davila, he's got, you know, and, and he's really proud. That's, I think it's great. My wine identity is schizophrenic. <laughs> I, I love I love all God's children. I don't really know that I have a identity. I, I, I'm I'm uh, I'm pretty out there. I'm pretty un- unidentified as myself as well. Well, now we're coming to that point in the podcast where we're going to find out what's in your glass. Ah, in my glass. Yeah, I, in, um, what are you drinking today? What am I drinking? Well, you know what? It's hot. 
I mean, I'm in the Northeast. It's like, it's been, we're going in a little heat wave here and we haven't had rain in like a while. So it's dry. It's really like the heat's really getting to me. So I'm, I am, I'm a classic, like this time of year, I drink a lot of rosé. Who doesn't? I'm, I'm just, I'm a rosé everyday kind of gal. Like it's just, you know, it's just hot. It. And I love the Gerard Bertrand, the Cote de Roses. It, it's just like $17 a bottle. It's so crisp, so light. My real, I guess I'm, when I say wine identity, if I could think of one wine for the summer that represents my, what I'm really passionate about and stuff. I love um, Italian Vermentino. Really? And I'm, I'm a big, big Vermentino fan. And, and I, I've only noticed, I didn't see Vermentinos around. And in the last few years, I've noticed them more on wine lists at restaurants and in the wine shops. But I, um, every summer, I go to Sardinia. Italy. To sit in Sardinia on one of those beaches and drink Vermentino, it is just, it's heaven on earth. It's absolute heaven on earth. And so for me, when the weather gets warm, I, I bust open the Vermentinos and they're, they're lemony and zesty and, and fresh and they go with shellfish and, you know, light salads, like everything you want to eat in the summer. That Vermentino is just so acidic and gorgeous. I love it. Absolutely right. I, love it. I love the refreshing quality of Vermentino. I think the mm. levels in Vermentino are fantastic. Is there any particular one that you are drinking these days, anything that we can find in the States? I know, like you said, Vermentinos are in restaurants, but if I'm a consumer and I'm just running to a wine shop and I want to pick one up, do you have a favorite? Yeah. You know what? There's one because I, I drink it when I'm in Sardinia and I drink it here in America and it's called Stella Mosca. And it's probably, it's like $10, $11 a bottle. It's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it's a great, I'm all for paying for the buck. I mean, if I'm going to spend 40, 50 bucks on a bottle of wine, it better damn well be good. <laughs> well, I can imagine. You know, the challenge is finding stuff that is, that is reasonable that you feel that you can go and buy, you know, five or six bottles and keep it in your, you know, refrigerator. And, and, but the Sella Mosca is so great. The Vermentino, it's everywhere in Sardinia. It's a Sardinian white wine. It's made there. So I, I love that. So it's nature's fire extinguisher for the summer. <laughs> yes, nature's fire extinguisher. I love what that. I, what I love about this is that you, it takes you back, though. I, I get the impression that when you have this wine, it transports you mentally back to Sardinia. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I had to cancel my trip this year. So oh. uh, I'll, be, I'll be enjoying uh, some here in, in Connecticut, out on my terrace. Oh, you've just given me a great idea. So for listeners, listen, if you were planning on having a trip someplace and it got canceled, go find a wine from that. Mm -hmm. Find a hammock. Yep. And find a local recipe. Like, Linguini Vangole is big there, right? Like we always love the Linguini Vangole in, in Sardinia because the, the lemon, you know, the butter and the little clams, they have these tiny, tiny little clams with Vermentino. Pick your place. Pick a, I, I, always, I do this for my kids, but once a month I pick Worldwide Wednesday and we pick a country because, you know, just to get them out of their rut. They're, I've been doing it for several years. I've done 24 countries and I do a whole meal from that country. And for me, we usually play the music from that country, but for me, I'll try to drink the wine from that country too. So I think we need to do that for the summer. It's World it's, Wine Wednesday. Yeah, World Wine I Wednesday. I am stealing okay. that. I am really <laughs> stealing that. This Wednesday, I'm going to throw a dart at the dartboard and we're going to figure out what country we're going to go visit. 
I love it. Absolutely. And make the make a make a paella and go to Spain, you know, make find a local yeah, find a local dish from Greece and have some acertico or you know. Well, it's good. I love the idea. And Sandra, I love talking to you. This has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you, Scott. What a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for joining me. That'll do it for this episode of The Vine Guy, a WTOP news podcast. The music you heard was Wishful Thinking by Dan Leibowitz, available in the YouTube audio library. This episode was produced by Sarah Beth Hensley. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter and catch my Wine of the Week shows every Friday afternoon. Until the next time, remember, do good, drink well.